All right, so we just looked at four errors to avoid. Allegorizing, spiritualizing, moralizing, and imitating Bible characters. And when I say four errors to avoid, I think you should avoid them, right? <laughs> Don't do that. You'll miss the main point. But there's five characteristics that story writers do use to guide you to the right understanding, to guide you to his point, and, in fact, to point you to the theme of the book and all that. So there's five techniques that characterize storytelling, and every story uses these, even the ones you see on television. So when you're watching television and you're watching a story unfold visually in a half hour, that story uses these characteristics. Every storyteller uses them. You need to know what they are so that you can follow it intelligently and intentionally. I'm going to cover those and give you biblical examples all the way through. Now the first one... <clears throat> or the, uh, this is my point. This is what I just said. There's five characteristics of narrative that the author uses. Now, the reason I'm saying that is they, the author gives it the meaning. He wants you to get the meaning, and so he's actually giving you clues along the way so that you come to the right understanding of what he's saying. He's not trying to hide it. And he's actually leading you there. And he's doing it through these characteristics. He's guiding the reader to an accurate understanding of his point. So he's using techniques to guide you there. And you should be aware of those because then you'd be able to be guided easier. You wouldn't need a big stick to get it done. Okay, the first one is characterization. This is the first tool or technique the author uses to convey to you the point he's trying to get across. Now this is the definition of characterization. Characterization is the presentation of the character through the writer's description of his appearance and social status, overt actions, direct speech and thought, and descriptive comments. So when the Bible talks about characterization, or when anybody talks about characterization, they describe the characters in the story. Characterization is just the description of the character. Now, if you were to read a novel in today's world, they would describe everything about the person. So, Let's say you read a, a Christian romance novel, and I'm looking in the wrong group. Let's say you read a Christian romance novel. The, the, the Christian romance novels will describe the male characters as, uh, you know, a six-pack stomach and rippling muscles in the shoulders, and I'm guessing I've never read one. Uh, blonde hair, blue eyes, a dominant chin, and, and they'll, they'll describe the whole person so that when you look at them, you're... When you envision him in your mind, you're going, oh, I see that guy and I, I know who he is, that type of a guy. So they describe everything. All the stories today describe everything. This guy over here is going, that was me he described. <laughs> okay, so 
the modern novels describe everything about the character so that you get a full impression of his physical being. When the Bible uses characterization, it only tells you what the author wants you to know. He doesn't tell you everything. He only tells you the parts that you need to know to understand his point. In other words, he's being selective. So there's a lot of things we know about the characters, but there's a lot of things we don't know about the characters, and what we don't know doesn't matter. What we are told matters. They're being selective. Now, in their selectivity, they're being honest. So the Bible doesn't tell you everything about Samson. It tells you some things about Samson. It doesn't tell you everything about the characters, just what you need to know. So there's a lot about David that we don't know. There's a lot about David we do know. But when it speaks of David, it always speaks honestly. So David is a man after God's own heart. But we also know that he was an adulterer and a murderer. And in spite of the fact that he was an adulterer and a murderer, God says he's a man after my own heart. And our jaw drops. What? It's important. The Bible was honest while it told us about the characters. It didn't tell us everything about David. There's a lot David did that we don't know about. But it does tell us, honestly, what he's like. So there's a lot of things we don't know about a lot of the characters. But what it does tell us is, first of all, honest. They're not trying to hide anything. But they are selective. They're only telling you what matters to the point they are making. All right, which leads me to this conclusion, and this is the big conclusion. Every time you read characterization in Scripture, the author wants you to pay attention and take note of it because it's important. So every time there is a description of a character, you have to say why. What is it telling me? Where is it leading me and to what conclusions uh, do, I, do I come to based upon that? I'm going to give you a couple, and then you get to tell me which one you want to see me develop, okay? So watch this one here, and if you want them both, I'll just do this one, and uh, that's a guide, a clue to the author. Here we go. This is Mark 1.6 talking about John the Baptist. This is characterization around John the Baptist. It says, now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Now you've read the Gospel of Mark, I'm sure, and when you read that you said, oh, that's interesting, and you probably glossed over it and moved on because in your mind you said, well, that can't be all that important. Well, let me tell you that this is characterization of John the Baptist, and when Mark recorded this, he intended to say something very, very important, and he expected you 
to figure it out based upon that characterization. That's one example of characterization. Here's another one. It comes from 1 Samuel, and this is Saul. This is king when Saul was anointed king. You'll remember that Samuel came to Saul and anointed him king, and then uh, he ran and was part of the prophets and so forth and so on. And then the day came when Saul, Samuel had to anoint the king publicly. And so he gathered all the males out of all the tribes of Israel to come together and so that they could pick by lot God's choice. So they're all, they're all gathered there. Saul know he's, knows he's going to be picked, and he hides among the baggage. So he's going, yeah, I know I'm going to be king, but geez, I'm not the right guy to be king. I'm just the, he actually describes himself as being the, 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 the smallest guy in the smallest tribe in Israel. I'm just Saul from Benjamin. He's going, I don't belong to, in the kingdom. I'm not the king. So they, they, they pull his lot, and they find him hiding among the baggage, and we read this. Then they ran and took him from there, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. What color was Saul's hair? We don't care. What color was his eyes? We don't care. Was he a big guy or did he have narrow shoulders and narrow hips? And was he more like a football player or a basketball player? We don't care. The only thing that we should care about is that when they pulled him out of the baggage, he's being described as a, a head taller than everybody else. So much so that Samuel said, and Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? And you go, well, how could they not? He's a head taller than everybody else. There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. So, with John the Baptist, Mark describes his clothing and expects you to trace down why that's important to a description of John the Baptist. In 1 Samuel, the author or editor of 1 Samuel describes Saul in only one way. He's taller than everyone else from his shoulders up. So everyone else is this tall and he's that, that much bigger than everybody else. And the author or editor of Samuel expects you to say, huh, I wonder why that's important. Okay, I can explain either or both. But for now, I only want to explain one because I don't want to run out of time. So, which would you rather have? An explanation of Mark's clothing or an explanation of Saul's height? Saul's height. We're going to talk about Saul's height. Okay. Okay. Why do we... Why, why does the fact that Saul is taller than everybody else matter to us? What do you do with tall people? You look up to them. You look up to them. Very good. So he's a head taller than everybody else, which means everybody in the nation of Israel looked up to Saul. Now, his height is probably not a character issue. In fact, when he looked at himself, he said, I'm taller than everybody else, but I am not 
king material. So when the whole nation gathers together to anoint the king of Israel, Saul, who knows he's going to be king, hides in the baggage because he says, yeah, I don't think I'm worthy to be king. I know no one else is going to think I'm worthy to be king. This is an exercise in futility. They pull him out, and Samuel says, look at this guy. There's none like him in all of Israel. And you look up to him because he was humble. He did not claim a right to the throne. In fact, he said, I am unworthy. And he hid. Now Saul, at this time, was selected by God, not because he was tall, but because he was humble. Who knows how Saul died? Anybody know how Saul died? He, he committed suicide. The end of 1 Samuel. He falls on his own sword. And at the end of the book, in the end of Saul's life, what are you, where are you looking to see Saul? Now you're looking down. So your introduction to Saul is this. Your conclusion to Saul is this. Characterization. He was a head taller. And you were looking up to him. And the idea is God wants you to look up to him. And he wants you to follow this leader because he's humble. And do you understand something? It's one of God's standard operating procedures. He exalts the humble and he brings down the proud. Every time. That's how God works. And every time you raise your fist in the face of God, God will bring you down because he works on this principle. He exalts the humble and he brings down the proud. You want to know why your Savior was humble and seated on a donkey? Because it honors God to be humble. It's part of his character. And Saul was humble and you looked up to him. But there's this big thing that happens in the middle of 1 Samuel, towards the middle of Saul's description of his kingship, and, and this event that takes place. And it's exceedingly revealing to how God viewed Saul as he moved through his, king, his kingdom. And so I have this text here. That was in case we used that one. We're moving through that one. So this is that story. This is the end. This is where they fell on his sword, in case you didn't know that I put this in, in uh, on slide form. He took his own sword and fell on it. And in the middle after that story, there's this one. So God had sent Saul, King Saul, on an assignment to go to Amalek and, and wipe the people out and kill them all and destroy everything. It was a it was a destruction devoted to the Lord, and so the people were not allowed to take anything away from it, like spoil. It was kind of like the city of Jericho and Achan. This was devoted to God, and they had to leave it there. Saul, uh, Saul went and did that, only he kept back some of the cattle and some of the sheep, and he kept the king. killed everybody but the best cattle, the best sheep, and the king. And then we read this. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. 
There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. <laughs> Do you see what just happened? The first, the first thing he does after winning this victory is he goes to Carmel and sets up a monument. And, and across the monument, it, it, it says, what a great God we have. No, 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 it doesn't say that at all. What it says is, what a great king you have. Look at what I did. Is Saul humble at this time? <laughs> hardly, hardly. So when Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you, I have carried out the Lord's instructions. And, but Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears, and what is this lowing of cattle that I hear? If you followed the instructions, why do I hear the cattle that you kept? And Saul answers, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Do you see his logic? We, we're going to use these to worship God. We're, we kept these back so we could worship. What's your definition of worship? Is it to do your own thing so that you can do what you want to do and bring to God what, God what you want to bring to God? Or is worship bringing to God what God asks for? True worship in this story would have been obedience. And Saul says, I don't have to obey. I want to sacrifice instead, so I'll keep the best. Stop. Samuel said to Saul, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And Saul, who thinks he's pretty cocksure of what's going on, says, tell me. Let me know. Watch what God said. This is from the mouth of God through Samuel. Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you've wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on a mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, the, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Notice the repetition. But Samuel replied, and here's the lesson, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. That comes in the middle of the story of Saul's reign. And the story starts this way. Saul, when you were small in your own eyes, people looked up to you and God exalted you because we exalt humble people. And then you got arrogant and said you had to you could quit listening. 
And you moved from humility to pride with partial obedience. And as you in your own eyes got bigger, in everyone else's eyes you got smaller. And at the end of your life we're looking down at you going, Saul, you need to be replaced. You know where this all starts? He was a head taller than everybody else. And you have to start watching now what happens to this greatness. You're looking up to him. And that greatness fails with pride. And he's brought low. And at the end of his life, you're saying, what a pathetic man. In 1 Samuel 18, after God revealed to him that he was going to be replaced in, Samuel, in 1 Samuel 15, uh, the, the people credited David with tens of thousands, but me only with thousands. So this is after the story of David and Goliath. And after the story of David and Goliath, Saul goes, huh, what more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Now that pride, in disregard of the word of the Lord that we saw in 1 Samuel 15, gets applied to David when Saul is, when Saul is told by God, you're going to get rejected, you're going to get replaced. So now instead of saying, okay, I have failed, and I have sinned, and I repent, Saul now says, I am going to kill David. And the rest of the, the first Samuel is about how many times Saul tried to kill David. Because he's no longer listening at all. He wasn't listening completely in 1 Samuel 15. Well, you get to 1 Samuel 18, and he's not listening at all. And Saul needs to be out of there. And at the end of his life, you're looking down at him going, that is not honorable to listen, or to fail to listen to God. And it's all where you're looking when you're introduced to him and at the end of his life. It's characterization. It's a powerful lesson. In fact, it goes over to David. So if we were to follow this, this story through the, through the transition of First and Second Samuel, we would find that David gets anointed king, wouldn't we? And we would find that uh, they have a meal to appoint the next king. So they bring in all the brothers. And, and, and Samuel sees Eliab. And Eliab, he walks in the room and Samuel goes, look at this guy. He obviously is the next king. Everything about him is kingly. And God looks at Samuel and says, don't look at the outer man. God looks at the heart. Went through all the brothers. Samuel says, none of these. None of these. Don't you have another brother? And they go, yeah, David, but he's, he's a kid. He's a kid. We can't, we can't pick him. He's still out with the sheep. Just like Saul, who was not putting himself forward, Neither was David. God picks humble people. That's why you have to be humble. You cannot be proud because pride leads you to say, I don't have to listen. I'm self-sufficient. I'm independent. I can stand on my own two feet. It's wrong. It's always wrong. Because you can't even breathe on your own. Because every breath you take has been given to you by God. 
And if you want to serve God rightly, you are a humble human being who listens and obeys. Because obedience is better than sacrifice. Saul was a head taller than everybody else. And at that time you went, wow, there is none like him. That's characterization. It does it a lot. There's a lot of it in the Bible. When you're reading, identify every comment that's made about the characters and ask yourself, why does it tell me that? Why doesn't it tell me about other things? What was his shoe size? When you read about Goliath, he's got a beam uh, he's got a spear uh, the size of a weaver's beam or whatever. He's, got a, he's, got a, he's nine feet tall. He's, it, it gives everything about uh, Goliath. With Saul, it tells us, tells us one thing. Why? Ask yourself why. Chase it down. It really makes the stories come alive. Okay, that's characterization. Or another technique the author uses to guide you to the point he wants you to get to the understanding you're supposed to have, is the use of a plot. Now, this is the definition of a plot. So a plot is uh, the, the, the arrangement of the events around a central conflict or set of conflicts moving toward a resolution. So there's two kinds. There's a simple plot, and then there's complex plots, and we're going to explain those in a minute. But a plot, whether it's simple or complex, doesn't matter which one, a plot always is a problem that needs to be solved. It's a tension in the story that causes you to say, I wonder how this is going to get fixed. Every story has a plot. There is no story that doesn't have a plot. If there is no plot, there's no story. So... Uh, the comic, the, the, the cartoon, Tom and Jerry, has a plot. Will Tom catch Jerry? Every single cartoon of Tom and Jerry has the Tom the cat chasing Jerry the mouse trying to catch him. Will the roadrunner no, will the coyote catch the roadrunner, right? Every single one of those cartoons has the same plot. This time, will the coyote catch the roadrunner? They do their little cartoon, and in the end, the roadrunner, beep, beep, and shoots away. Okay, every time. You can go to cartoons, every cartoon you watch, and there's a, there's a plot to it. Uh, I don't know if you've watched Seinfeld. Seinfeld is a great uh, a comedy in many respects. The very first show of Seinfeld, I don't know if, you, if you've seen it, but they were going to write a TV show and they had to sell it to the chairman of NBC or CBS, whichever one it was, I don't even remember. So, so they decide on, they were discussing what the show should be about. And George says, the show is about nothing. You remember? Did anybody see this? So it's about nothing. And they, they go to try to sell it to the head of the television studio. 
And the guy says, well, what's the show going to be about? And George says, nothing. And the guy, out of the mouth of the television studio director, he, he, he says, it can't be about nothing. And George goes, no, it's about nothing. The guy was arguing, the, the head of the TV show was arguing, it has to have a plot. It has to be about something. And George is arguing, yes, it's about nothing. That's what it's about. And they had this long, drawn-out conversation about what's the plot going to be. And if you ever watch Seinfeld, it's about nothing. They have a whole show, multiple shows about a soup Nazi. What? They have, they have multiple shows about cars and, 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 and just stupid things. It's about nothing. But it's about something. The something that it's about is nothing. Because it has to have a plot. It was, it's a great show. Because the something that it's about is nothing. And it's not about anything at all. And yet you laugh. That's a plot. Every show has a plot. Every story has a plot. And every story in the Bible has one. And it's the tension that needs to be resolved that leads you to the point of the story every time. So, uh, will Abraham kill Isaac? That's the plot of Genesis 21, I think it is. Will Abraham kill Isaac? Will Daniel get eaten by lions? That's the plot. Now pay attention. Will Jesus die on a storm, die on the Sea of Galilee, because there's a storm? That's the plot. Ah, oh. See, there's a tension. The disciples woke Jesus up, and they said, we're going to drown. Jesus goes, you're nuts. You're crazy. <laughs> I don't drown. I die on a cross. The plot. The plot is leading you somewhere. You better follow it or you miss it. A simple plot is one that comes up and then goes away. It comes up once and then it doesn't show up anymore. So a simple plot is a plot like David and Goliath. Who will win the battle? The trained military giant with an armor bearer, hands the size, uh, huge hands that can hold a weaver's beam, fully garmented out for war, uh, or the guy with a sling and five smooth stones. Who's going to win? Daniel in the lion's den. Does Daniel get eaten? Those are simple plots. They come up once, they go away, and we don't find them anymore in Scripture. The complex plot is one that shows up uh, more and more. So this is a simple plot. Here's a complex plot. They have complex resolution. So it comes up, it gets settled, it comes up again and gets settled again. That's a complex plot. There's a number of them in the Bible. One of them is Saul and David. So if you were to read 1 Samuel and you, you start with the passage I showed you, uh, David kills Goliath, then Saul gets jealous of David, and I, from the rest of that time on, Saul tries to kill David, David escapes, Saul kill, tries to kill David, David escapes, Saul tries to kill David, David escapes, and the rest of the book until Saul dies. All right? 
And you're, you're going, well, come on, why do I have to keep reading the story that keeps coming back again and going forth and coming back again? And, and your question is, will Saul ever get David? Will David survive Saul? Will, will Saul get him this time? And we know the story, don't we? Do you realize that if Saul killed David, God would not be God? Do you realize that? If Saul actually got David, then God's word failed because he had anointed David king of Israel. And if David was killed by Saul, God failed. And he wouldn't be God if he failed because God promised him to be king. So then God doesn't even know what the future holds. And if God doesn't know what the future holds, believe me, you don't want to follow him. Because he can't promise you anything about the future. So every time this plot comes up, every single time, you're saying, this time will Saul kill David, your mind should say no. David's going to be the next king of Israel. Saul's an idiot. He's not listening. It comes up again and you could go, maybe this time you should go no. Because my God promised him the kingdom. And the plot recurs to force you to keep asking the question, to force you to confirm your faith so that you sit there and say, no, I believe what God said. I believe what God said, David will be king. I believe what God says, David will be king. And that matters to your faith. Because God wants you to say, I believe what God says, and one day I will be saved. I will come alive from the dead because my God does not fail. A complex plot, throwing it at you, throwing it at you, throwing it at you. Because God wants you to keep asking the question, will I ever fail? Because he wants you to come back again stronger this time. No, you will not. No, you will not. You will never fail. That's a powerful issue, tool that the authors are using to get you to move with them in this lesson, this spiritual lesson that he's driving at you. There's another complex plot, and I'll give you this last one. It's the one uh, Jesus dying before his time. So, so you, know, you know the stories, right? One time they, he's teaching and he claims uh, to, be, uh, to be God, uh, to be like God, or claims to be the Son of God. And they push him over the cliff. No, they, they run to push him over the cliff. And you go, is, what? A crowd is pushing one guy, one guy, over a cliff. So this crowd of people is taking this one guy, and, eh, and the very next verse says, and he just walked right through the midst of them. What? That's the end of the story? You can't make it more dramatic than that? Is Jesus going to die by falling off a cliff? No. <laughs> Come on. No. So this other time, this other time, Jesus is in a boat and a lake, and a storm comes up, and the disciples wake him up. Jesus, we're going to drown. 
Is Jesus going to die before his time? No. Another time they put him in a circle of people to throw stones at him. And they don't stone him either. Right on time. At just the right time, Paul tells us. Christ died for the ungodly. At just the right time. Not in the cliff, not in the water, not by stoning, but by crucifixion. Because that's what the Old Testament said the Messiah was going to do. And if Jesus died by falling over a cliff, then God is removed from his throne. And it just keeps coming back. Coming back. So that you keep bringing it to the forefront of your mind and you keep saying to yourself, I wonder how Jesus is going to die. My Savior dies on a cross. Is he going to die this time? No, my Savior dies on a cross. Why does my Savior die on a cross? Because God said so. A complex plot. Throws it back at you. Throws it back at you. So that you walk away totally confident that there's a design here that will never fail. And it's almost anticlimactic that they keep trying to kill Jesus before the cross. It's just not going to happen. That's the plot. Every story has one. And it's intended to have you ask the question. So when you read the story, when you read the story, the plot jumps off the page and you should actually make a mental note. Well, are the lions going to eat Daniel? Will Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego die in the fire? Will, whatever it is, will Goliath win? Ask yourself the plot, and you're going to know the answer. And if you don't, you're going to be led to the answer, and that's going to be the answer that you are supposed to understand. That's the plot. 